the Puritan Thomas Brooks. He was a very affecting preacher and useful to many. And though he used many homely phrases and sometimes too familiar resemblances, which to nice critics appear ridiculous, yet he did more good to souls than many of the exact composers. He published many books. That of holiness is the most considerable. Chapter 2. A short account of several ministers remarkable for their zeal and diligence in the work of the gospel in Scotland, with some hints of the religious concern in the west of Scotland, about the year 1625, 1630, 1638, and in Ireland about the year 1628. Mr. Samuel Rutherford Samuel Rutherford was a most learned man, a most plain and painful minister, and a most heavenly Christian as was in his time. He was first a professor of philosophy in the College of Edinburgh, afterwards minister at Anwath and Galloway. Thereafter, by the General Assembly at Glasgow in 1638, he was transported to be minister and professor of theology at St. Andrews, where he continued in the work of the Lord till the year 1661, in which time with great peace and joy he died. He had a most sharp, piercing wit and fruitful invention and solid judgment. He used ordinarily to rise by three o'clock in the morning. He spent all his time either in praying or reading or writing or in visiting families, in private or in public employments of his ministry and profession. While he was at Anwath, he was the instrument of much good among a poor, ignorant people, many of whom he brought to the knowledge and practice of religion, and was a great strengthener of all the Christians in that country, who had been the fruits of the ministry of Mr. John Welch, the time he had been minister at Kirkenbright. While Mr. Rutherford was at Anwath, he published his Exercitationus de Gratia, for which and for his nonconformity he was summoned before the High Commission, and because he declined them, he was confined in Aberdeen, where he remained two years, from whence he wrote many letters, all of them breathing much of heaven, many of which are since his death printed. In that place he wanted not some fruits of his ministry, by his private labors, although he was not there permitted to preach in public. When the change came by renewing the covenant in the year 1638, he returned to Anwath, where he continued in his ministry till he went to St. Andrews, where he bred many godly and able youths for the ministry, and took great pains both in public and private among the people. He was also very useful, being sent commissioner with some others to the Assembly of Divines in England. By his preaching and by his pen he opposed all the corruptions of his time. Mr. Fleming, in his Fulfilling of the Scriptures, Part 1, says, Quote, I shall also mention that great servant of Christ, Mr. Rutherford, whose letters, now published, can witness what solemn days of the Spirit and sensible outlettings thereof he oft had in his own experience. Though books can tell but little of what he really felt and enjoyed, I shall only set down some of his last and dying expressions, which I had from these who were then present, and caused right down the same with his mouth, that they may see how lovely he also was in his death and how well that did correspond with his former life. Some of his words are these, quote, I shall shine, I shall see him as he is, and all the fair company with him, and shall have my large share of it. It is no easy thing for me to be a Christian, but as for me, I have got the victory, and Christ is holding forth his arms to embrace me. I have had my fears and faintings as another sinful man, to be carried through creditably, but as sure as ever he spake to me in his word, his spirit witnessed to my heart, saying, Fear not, he had accepted my suffering, and the outgate should not be manner of prayer, but of praise. Quote. He said also, Thy word was found, and I did eat it, and it was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. And a little before his death, after some fainting, he saith, Now I feel, I believe, I enjoy, I rejoice. 
And turning to Mr. Blair, then present, he said, I feed on manna. I have angels' food. My eyes shall see my Redeemer. I know that he shall stand at the latter day on the earth, and I shall be caught up in the clouds to meet him in the air. And afterwards had these words, I sleep in Christ, and when I awake, I shall be satisfied with his likeness. Oh, for arms to embrace him. And to one speaking of his painfulness in the ministry, he cried out, quote, I disclaim all. The port I would be in at his redemption and forgiveness of sin through his blood, end quote. And thus full of the Spirit, yea, as it were overcome with sensible enjoyment, he breathed out his soul, his last words being, Glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Chapter 3 The piety of the first settlers of New England in 1630 and so on. The labors of some of their ministers to convert the Americans, 1646 and 1650, some examples of American converts who afterwards preached the gospel themselves. Section 1. A short view of the flourishing state of religion in New England during the life of the first planters from 1630 to 1660. Mr. Prince, in his sermon before the General Assembly of the province of Massachusetts, speaks of the first settlers of New England. The generality of them were near descendants of the first reformers in England. They were born of pious parents who brought them up in a course of strict religion and under the ministry of the most awakening preachers of those days. Like so many Timothys, they were from their childhood taught to know the Holy Scriptures, to reverence them as the inspirations of God, as the only rule of faith and piety, and to aim at both the pure scriptural way of worship and at the vital power and practice of godliness. When for the sake of religion they came over to America, how horrid and dismal did these newfound regions appear! On the shores and rivers, nothing but sights of wretched, naked, and barbarous nations, the doors of devils, the earth covered with hideous thickets that required infinite toils to subdue, a rigorous winter for a third part of the year, not a house to live in, not a Christian to see, none but heathens of a strange and hard language to speak with, not a friend within 3,000 miles to help in any emergency, and a vast and dangerous ocean to pass over to this, but the Almighty inspires with a zeal and courage that nothing can daunt, with a face and patience that nothing can break. He raises up men of superior piety, resolution and wisdom, to lead and animate in the great design, such as Mr. Carver, Bradford, and Winslow, successive governors of Plymouth Colony, who came together with about an hundred souls in the first ship, which set sail at the last time from Plymouth in England on September 6, 1620, and arrived in Cape Cod Harbor on November 11th, and at the place they named Plymouth in New England in December. And the Lord having cast out multitudes of heathens before their arrival, he gives them favor in the sight of the rest. He divided his people in inheritance by line, and makes them to dwell in the midst of many powerful nations that could have swallowed them up in a moment for above fifty years together. Great numbers of like pious dispositions with the former, yet continued in the churches of England, and in communion with them, as long as the higher powers indulged them, with earnest desires, labors, and hopes of a farther reformation of worship. But a spirit of severe imposition is now let loose upon these, and now at once at the surprise of the nation, in almost every corner they are moved by God to look to this wilderness. Many persons of shining figures are raised up to espouse their cause and venture with them. Their princes prevailed on to grant them a charter of distinguishing privileges. Their flocks in great numbers attend and follow them. They relinquish their delightful seats and their dearest friends. They cast themselves and their children on a tumultuous ocean, and nothing can move them. So they may come into a wilderness to hear the voice of their teachers, becoming a covenant people of God. 
observe his laws, set up his tabernacle, behold his glory, and leave these things to their offspring forever. And the Lord preserves them. He makes the depths of the sea a way for the ransom to pass over. He brings them in thousands to these peaceful shores. And here they that knew not each other before salute and embrace with joy. He unites them in the most lovely agreement to profess and serve Him. They publicly and solemnly enter into covenant with Him, to love and obey Him, to make His doctrines the only rule of faith, and His institutions the only rule of worship. And with united joy they sing to the Lord, Thou in Thy mercy hast led forth the people which Thou hast redeemed. On Saturday, June 12, 1630, arrived in Salem's River, the Arabella, with Governor Winthrop and some of his assistants, bringing the charter of the Massachusetts colony, and therewith the government transferred hither. The other ten ships of the fleet with Deputy Governor Dudley and the other assistants arrived in Salem and Charles Rivers before July 11th. In the same month, the governor's deputy governor and assistance with the reverend messengers Wilson and Phillips came with their goods to Charleston, where the first court of assistance was held on August 23rd the same year, and a number of people which arrived this summer with about 1,500. In June 1636, the reverend Thomas Hooker, with about an hundred in company, went up from the Massachusetts, began the town of Hartford, and laid the foundation of Connecticut Colony. In the following year, the Reverend Mr. Davenport, with the honored Mr. Theophilus Eaton, began the town of New Haven and laid the foundation of New Haven Colony. And in 1639, a church was gathered at Hampton, which was the first in the province of New Hampshire. It must be here observed that though the generality both of the first leaders, heads of the families, and freemen were persons of noted piety, yet there were great numbers not only of the younger sort, both of children and servants, but also of elder of every age who came over both in the year 1630 and the ten following years, they came hither only under the common impressions of a pious ministry or education or the religious influence of their friends or heads of families they belonged to and who were therefore fit materials for the numerous conversions which quickly, which quickly followed under the lively searching and awakening preaching of the primitive ministers. And to the great glory of God, be it spoken, there never was perhaps before seen such a body of pious people come together on the face of the earth. For those who came over first came hither for the sake of religion, and for that pure religion which was entirely hated by the loose and profane of the world. Their civil and ecclesiastical leaders were exemplary patterns of piety. They encouraged only the virtuous to come with and follow them. They were so strict on the vicious both in the church and state that the incorrigible could not endure to live in the country. Profane swears and drunkards were not known in the land. And it quickly grew so famous for religion abroad that scarce any other but those who liked it came over for many years after. Indeed, such numbers were common that the crown was obliged to stop them. Or a great part of the nation had so on emptied itself into these American regions. And for those who were here, the Spirit from on high is poured upon them, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. Judgment and righteous continue in it, and the effect of righteousness is peace, while a cruel war rages in the kingdom they left lays it waste and drowns it in blood. The people here dwell in peaceable habitations. And the Lord enlarges the bounds of their tents. He makes them to break forth on the right hand and on the left. He makes their seed to inherit the lands of the Gentiles and the desolate places to be inhabited. 
In 27 years, from the first plantation, there were 43 churches in joint communion with one another. And in 27 years more, there appear above fourscore English churches of Christ, composed only of known pious and faithful professors dispersed through the wilderness, 12 or 13 in Plymouth Colony, 47 in the Massachusetts Colony and province of New Hampshire, 19 in Connecticut, 3 in Long Island, and 1 at Martha's Vineyard. Mr. Roger Clapp, writing of these times, says, Quote, and what a wondrous work of God was it to stir up such worthies to remove themselves and their wives and children from their native country, to come into this wilderness, to set up the pure worship of God here. Men fit for government and the magistracy, and sound godly learned men for the ministry, such as Mr. Winthrop Governor, Mr. Dudley Deputy Governor, Sir Richard Saltonstall, Mr. Johnson, Mr. Rossiter, Mr. Ludlow, Mr. Noel, and Mr. Bradstreet. And for ministers, Mr. William, Mr. Warham, Mr. Maverick and Mr. Phillips, also Mr. Elliot, Mr. Weld, Mr. Cotton, Mr. Hooker, Mr. Buckley, Mr. Stone, Mr. Nathaniel Rogers, Mr. Ezekiel Rogers, Thomas Shepard, Richard Master, Mr. Peters, Mr. Davenport, Mr. Whitting, Mr. Colbert, Mr. Hubbard, Mr. Brown, Mr. Flint, Mr. Thompson, Mr. Newman, Mr. Pruden, Mr. Norris, Mr. Hewitt, Mr. Street, and many others. Then in those days did God manifest his presence among us and converted many souls and gathering his dear ones into church fellowship each with other by solemn covenants wherein they gave up themselves and their seed to the Lord. End quote. In writing of the great straits of the primitive settlers of New England, he says, quote, I took notice of it as a great favor of God unto me not only to preserve my life but to give me contentedness in all these straits and so much that I do not remember that ever I did wish in my heart that I had not come into this country, or wish myself back again to my father's house. Yea, I was so far from that, that I wish and advised some of my dear brethren to come hither also, which accordingly one of my brothers did, and those two that married my two sisters sold their means and came hither. The Lord Jesus Christ was so plainly held out in the preaching of the gospel unto poor lost sinners, and the absolute necessity of the new birth, and God's Holy Spirit in those days was pleased to accompany the word with such efficacy upon the hearts of many that our hearts were taken off from old England and set upon heaven. The discourse not only of the age but of the use also was not, How shall we go to England, though some few did not only so discourse but also went back again? But how shall we go to heaven? Have I true grace wrought in my heart? Have I Christ or not? Oh, how did men and women, young or old, pray for grace, beg Christ in those days? And it was not in vain. Many were converted, and others established in believing. Many joined unto the several churches where they lived, confessing their faith publicly, and showing before all the assembly their experiences of the workings of God's Spirit in their hearts to bring them to Christ, which many hearers found very much good by, to help them to try their own hearts, and to consider how it was with them, whether any work of God's Spirit were wrought in their hearts or no. Oh, the many tears that have been shed at Dorchester Meeting House at such times, both by those that have declared God's work on their souls, and also by those that heard them. In those days God, even our own God, did bless New England. The following account is from Neil's History of the Puritans in the year 1629. Religion being the chief motives of their coming into these parts that was settled in the first place, August the 6th being appointed for the solemnity of forming themselves into a religious society, the day was spent in fasting and prayer, and thirty persons who desired to be of the communion, severally before the whole congregation, declared their consent to a confession of faith, which Mr. Higginson had drawn up, 
and signed the following covenant with their hands, quote, We covenant with our Lord and one with another. We bind ourselves in the presence of God to walk together in all His ways, according as He is pleased to reveal Himself to us in His blessed word of truth, and do profess to walk as followed through the power and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We avouch the Lord to be our God and ourselves to be His people in the truth and simplicity of our spirits. We give ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the word of His grace for the teaching, ruling, and sanctifying us in manners of worship and conversation, resolving to reject all canons and constitutions of men in worship. We promise to walk with our brethren with all watchfulness and tenderness, avoiding jealousy, suspicions, backbiting, censorings, provokings, secret risings of spirit against them, but in all offenses to follow rule of our Lord Jesus Christ and to bear and forbear, give and forgive as He has taught us. In public or private, we will willingly do nothing to the offense of the church, but will be willing to take advice for ourselves and ours as occasion shall be presented. We will not in the congregation be forward either to show our own gifts and parts in speaking, or scrupling, or in discovering the weaknesses or failings of our brethren, but attend an ordinary call thereunto, knowing how much the Lord may be dishonored, and His gospel in the profession of it, slighted by our distempers and weaknesses in public. We bind ourselves to study the advancement of the gospel in all truth and peace, both in regard of those that are within or without, no way slighting our sister churches, but using their counsel as need shall be, not laying a stumbling block before any, no, not the Indians, whose good we desire to promote, and so to converse as we may avoid the very appearance of evil. We do hereby promise to carry ourselves in all lawful obedience to those that are over us in church or commonwealth, knowing how well pleasing it will be to the Lord that they should have encouragement in their places by our not grieving their spirits by our irregularities. We resolve to approve ourselves to the Lord in our particular calling, shunning idleness as a bane of any state, nor will we deal hardly or oppressively with any, wherein we are the Lord's stewards, promising also to the best of our ability to teach our children and servants the knowledge of God and of His will, that they may serve Him also, in all this not by any strength of our own, but by the Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood we desire may sprinkle this our covenant made in His name. From the same author in the year 1634. This summer, the Reverend Thomas Shepard fled to New England. He had been a lecturer at Earl's Con in Essex several years, but when Bishop Laud became a bishop of London, his lecture was put down in himself silence. He then retired into the family of a private gentleman, but not being safe there, he traveled into Yorkshire, where he was commanded to subscribe or depart the country. Upon this, he went to Heden in Northumberland, where his labors were prospered to the conversion of some souls. But being forbid to preach there also, he took shipping at Yarmouth for New England. There he continued pastor of the church at Cambridge until his death, August 25, 1649, in the 44th year of his age. He was a hard student, an exemplary Christian, and an eminent practical writer as appears by his sincere convert and other practical works that go under his name. Great numbers of the most useful and laborious preachers in all parts of the country were buried in silence and forced to abscond, among whom were Mr. John Dodd, Mr. Wheatley, Dr. Harris, Mr. Capel, Mr. John Rogers of Dedham, one of the most awakening preachers of his age, of whom Bishop Brownridge used to say, quote, that he did me more good with his wild notes than we with our set music, end quote. But his great, but his great usefulness could not screen him from those suspensions and deprivations which were the portion of the Puritans in these times. Others continued to leave their country according to our blessed Savior's advice, Matthew 10, verse 23. When they persecute you in this city, flee you into another. 
Among these were Mr. Nathaniel Rogers, son of Mr. John Rogers of Dedham, educated at Emmanuel College in Cambridge, and settled at Essenton in Suffolk, where he continued five years. But seeing the storm that had driven his neighbors from their anchor, and being fearful of his own steadfastness in the hour of temptation, he resigned his living into the hands of his patron, and forsaking the neighborhood of his father, and all prospects of worldly advantage, cast himself and his young family upon the providence of God, and embarked for New England, where he arrived about the middle of November 1636, and settled with Mr. Norton at Ipswich, with whom he continued to his death in the year 1655. About the same time went over Mr. Lambert Whiting, a Lincolnshire divine who continued at Sherbeck, near Boston, unmolested, unmolested until Bishop Williams' disgrace, after which he was silenced by the spiritual courts, and forced into New England, where he arrived with his family this summer, and continued a useful preacher to a little flock at Lynn until his death. Thus did an overruling providence send the gospel into New England, and thereby the kingdom of Christ was not only promoted in this infant colony, but as we shall see in the following section, among the American savages also. Section 2. Mr. Elliot, having learned the language of the Indians, sets himself in 1646 to preach the gospel to them. His success among them, 1651, some of their dying speeches. This account is from Cotton Mather's Life of Elliot. The natives of the country now possessed by the New Englanders had been forlorn and wretched heathens ever since their first herding here. Just before the arrival of the English in those parts, a prodigious mortality had swept away vast numbers of the Indians, and those pagans who, being told by a shipwrecked Frenchman, who died in their hands, that God would shortly extirpate them and introduce a more worthy people into their place, blasphemously replied that God could not kill them were quickly killed with such a raging and wasting pestilence as left the very earth covered with their carcasses. Nevertheless, they were, I think, twenty several nations, if I may call them so, of Indians upon that spot of ground, which fell under the influence of our three united colonies. And our Elliot was willing to rescue as many of them as he could from that old usurping landlord of America, who is by the wrath of God the prince of this world. I cannot find that any besides the Holy Spirit of God first moved him to the blessing work of evangelizing these perishing Indians. It was that Holy Spirit which laid before his mind the idea of that which is now on the seal of the Massachusetts colony. A poor Indian having a label going from his mouth with a, Come over and help us. But when this charitable pity had once begun to flame, there was a concurrence of many things to cast oil into it. All the good men in the country were glad of the engagement in such an undertaking, the ministers especially encouraged him, and those in the neighborhood kindly supplied his place and performed his work in part for him at Roxboro, where he was abroad laboring among them that were without. Hereunto he was further awakened by those expressions in the royal charter, in the assurance and protection whereof this wilderness was first peopled, namely, quote, to win and incite the natives of that country to the knowledge and obedience of the only true God and Savior of mankind and the Christian faith, in our royal intention, and the adventurer's free profession is the principal end of the plantation, end quote. And a remarkable zeal of the Romish missionary, compassing sea and land that they might make proselytes, made his devout soul think of it with a further disdain, that we should come any whit behind in our care to evangelize the Indians whom we dwelt among. Lastly, when we had well begun this evangelical business, the good God, in answer to his prayers, mercifully stirred up a liberal contribution among the godly people in England for the promoting of it. By means whereof, a considerable estate and income was at length entrusted in the hands of an honorable corporation, by whom it is to this day very carefully employed in the Christian service which it was designed for. 
The exemplary charity of the excellent person in this important affair will not be seen in its due luster unless we make some reflections upon several circumstances which we beheld these forlorn Indians in. Know then that these doleful creatures are the various ruins of mankind which are to be found anywhere upon the earth. They live in a country where we now have all the conveniences of human life, but as for them their housing is nothing but a few mats tied about poles. Fastened in the earth, where a good fire is their bedclothes in the coldest seasons, their clothing is but a skin of a beast, covering their hind parts, their foreparts having but a little apron where nature calls of secrecy, their diet has not a greater dainty than their nope-hick, that is a spoonful of their parched meal with a spoonful of water, which will strengthen them to travel a day together, except we should mention the flesh of deers, bears, moose, raccoons, and the like, which they have when they can catch them as also a little fish, which that they would preserve, it was by drying, not by salting. For they had not a grain of salt, I think, till we bestowed it on them. Their physic is excepting a few old specifics, which some of them encounter certain cases with nothing hardly, but an hot house or a powwow. Their hot house is a little cave about eight feet over, where, after they have terribly heated it, a crew of them go and sweat and smoke for an hour together, and then immediately run into some cold adjacent brook, without the least mischief to them. It is this way they recover themselves from some diseases. In most of their dangerous distempers, it is a powwow that must be sent for. That is a priest who has more familiarity with Satan than his neighbors, who comes and roars and howls, and uses magical ceremonies over the sick man. They live in a country full of the best ship timber, but never saw a ship till some came from Europe hither. And then they were scared out of their wits to see the monster come sailing in and spitting fire with a mighty noise out of her floating side. They cross the water in canoes, made sometimes of trees, which they burn and hew till they have hollowed them, and sometimes of barks which they have stitched into a light sort of vessel to be easily carried over land. The men are most abominably slothful, making their poor squaws or wives to plant and dress and barn and beat their corn and build their wigwams for them. In the meantime, their chief employment, when they will condescend unto any, is that of hunting, wherein they will go out some scores, if not hundreds of them in a company, driving all before them. They continue in a place till they have burned up all the wood thereabouts. Hence, when they inquire about the English, why come they hither, they determine it was because we wanted firing. Their division of time is by sleeps and moons and winters, and by lodging abroad. They have somewhat observed the motions of the stars, among which it has been surprising unto me to find that they have always called Charles Wayne by the name of Kanawha, or the bear, which is the name whereby Europeans also have distinguished it. Moreover, they have little, if any, traditions among them worthy of our notice, and reading and writing is altogether unknown to them, though there is a rock or two in the country that have unaccountable characters engraved upon them. All the religion they have amounts unto such much. They believe that there are many gods who made and owned the several nations of the world, of which a certain great god in the southwest regions of heaven bears the greatest figure. They believe that every remarkable creature has a peculiar god within it or about it. There is with them a sun god, a moon god, and the like, and they cannot conceive but that the fire must be a kind of a god, inasmuch as the spark of it will soon produce very strange effects. They believe that when any good or evil happens to them, there is the favor or the anger of a god expressed in it, and hence, as in a time of calamity, they keep a dance or a day of extravagant, ridiculous devotions to their god. So in a time of prosperity, they likewise have a feast, wherein they also make presents one to another. Finally, they believe that their chief god, Katanawit, 
made a man and woman of a stone, which upon this like he broke to pieces, and made another man and woman of a tree, which were the foundations of all mankind. And that we all have in us immortal souls, which, if we are godly, shall go to a splendid entertainment with Katanawit, but otherwise must wander about in restless horror for ever. But if you say to them anything of a resurrection, they will reply unto you, I shall never believe it. And when they have any weighty undertaken before them, it is an usual thing for them to have their assemblies, wherein they use diabolical rites and sometimes their odd events of their making applications to the devil. This was the miserable people he propounded unto himself the saving of. And he had a double work incumbent on him. He was to make men of them. Ere he could hope to see them saints, they must be civilized, ere they could be Christianized. To think on raising the number of these hideous creatures unto the elevation of our holy religion must argue more than common sentiments in the undertaker, but the faith of an elegate could encounter it. The first step which he judged necessary to be taken by him was to learn the Indian language, for he saw them so stupid and senseless that they would never do so much as inquire after the religion of strangers now come into their country, much less would they so far imitate us as to leave off their beastly way of living that they might be partakers of any spiritual advantage by us unless we could first address them in their own language. Behold new difficulties to be surmounted by our indefatigable Elliot. He hires a native to teach him this exotic language, and with a laborious care and skill reduces it into a grammar which afterwards he published. Having finished his grammar at the close, he writes, Prayers and pains through faith in Christ Jesus will do anything. And being by his prayers and pains thus furnished, he set himself in the year 1646 to preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ among these desolate outcasts. It remains that I lay before the world the remarkable conduct and success of this famous man in this great affair. And I shall endeavor to do it by Englishing and reprinting a letter sent a while since by my father unto his learned correspondent, Dr. Luston at Utrecht, which letter has already been published, if I mistake not, in four or five divers languages. I find it particularly published by Juro at the end of a pastoral letter. I therefore persuade myself that the republication of it will not be ungrateful unto many souls in our nation who have a due thirst and zeal for such things as are mentioned in it. And when that is done, I shall presume to make some annotations for the illustration of sundry memorable things therein pointed at. Here is this letter. Quote, Worthy and much honored sir, your letters were very grateful to me, by which I understand that you and others in this famous University of Utrecht desire to be informed concerning the converted Indians in America. Take therefore a true account of them in a few words. It is about forty years since that truly godly man, Mr. John Elliot, pastor of the church at Roxborough, about a mile from Boston in New England, being warmed with the holy zeal of converting the Americans, set himself to learn the Indian tongue, that he might more easily and successfully open to them the mysteries of the gospel, upon account of which he has been called the Apostle of the American Indians. This reverend person, not without very great labor, translated the whole Bible into the Indian tongue. He translated also several English treatises of practical divinity and catechisms into their language. About 26 years ago, he gathered a church of converted Indians in a town called Natick. These Indians confessed their sins with tears and professed their faith in Christ, and afterwards they and their children were baptized, and they were solemnly joined together in a church covenant. The said Mr. Elliot was the first that administered the Lord's Supper to them. The pastor of that church now is an Indian. His name is Daniel. Besides this church at Natick, among our inhabitants in the Massachusetts colony, there are four Indian assemblies where the name of the true God in Jesus Christ is solemnly called upon. 
These assemblies have some American preachers. Mr. Elliot formerly used to preach to them once every fortnight, but now he is weakened with labors and old age, being in the 84th year of his age, and preaches not to the Indians oftener than once in two months. There is another church consisting only of converted Indians, about 50 miles from hence, in an Indian town called Mashapog. The first pastor of that church was an Englishman, who, being skillful in the American language, preached the gospel to them in their own tongue. This English pastor is dead, and instead of him, that church has an Indian preacher. There are, besides that, five assemblies of Indians professing the name of Christ, not far distant from Mashapog, which have Indian preachers. John Cotton, pastor of the church at Plymouth, son of my venerable father-in-law, John Cotton, formerly teacher of the church at Boston, have made very great progress in learning the Indian tongue, and is very skillful in it. He preaches in their own language to the last five mentioned congregations every week. Moreover, of the inhabitants of Sakonet, in Plymouth Colony, there is a great congregation of those who, for distinction's sake, are called praying Indians, because they pray to God in Christ. Not far from a promontory called Cape Cod, there are six assemblies of heathens who are to be reckoned as catechumens, amongst whom there are six Indian preachers. Samuel Treat, pastor of the church of Eastham, preached to those congregations in their own language. There are likewise amongst the islanders of Nantucket a church with a pastor who was lately a heathen, and several meetings of catechumens who are instructed by the converted Indians. There is also another island about seven leagues long called Martha's Vineyard, where two American churches planted, which are more famous than the rest, over one of which there presides an ancient Indian as pastor called Hayakums. John Hayakums, son of the said Indian pastor, also preacheth the gospel to his countrymen. In another church in that place, John Takanosh, a converted Indian, teaches. In these churches, ruling elders of the Indians are joined to the pastors. The pastors were chosen by the people, and when they had fasted and prayed, Mr. Elliot and Mr. Cotton laid their hands on them, so that they were solemnly ordained. All the congregations of the converted Indians, both the catechumens and those in church order, every Lord's Day meet together. The pastor or preacher always begins with prayer. When the ruler of the assembly has ended prayer, the whole congregation of Indians praise God with singing. Some of them are excellent singers. After the psalm, he that preaches reads a place of scripture and expounds it, gathers doctrines from it, proves them by scriptures and reasons, and infers uses from them after the manner of the English, of whom they have been taught. Then another prayer to God in the name of Christ concludes the whole service. Thus do they meet together twice every Lord's Day. They observe no holy days but the Lord's Day, except upon some extraordinary occasion, and then they solemnly set apart whole days either in giving thanks or fasting and praying with great fervor of mind. Before the English came into these coasts, these barbarous nations were altogether ignorant of the true God. Hence it is that in their prayers and sermons they use English words and terms. He that calls upon the most holy name of God says Jehovah, or God, or Lord, and also they have learned and borrowed many other theological phrases from us. In short, there are six churches of baptized Indians in New England, and eighteen assemblies of catechumens professing the name of Christ. Of the Indians, there are four and twenty who are preachers of the word of God, and besides these, there are four English ministers who preach the gospel in the Indian tongue. I am now myself weary with writing, and I fear lest I should add more. I should also be tedious to you. Yet one thing I must add, that there are many of the Indians' children who have learned by heart the catechism, either of Perkins or that put forth by the Assembly of Divines at Westminster, and in their own mother tongue can answer to all the questions in it. But I must end. I salute the professors in your university, to whom I desire you to communicate this letter, as written to them also. 
Farewell, worthy sir. The Lord preserve your health for the benefit of your country, his church, and of learning. Yours ever, Increase Mather. Boston and New England, July 12, 1687. After the writing of this letter, there came one to my hands from Dr. Luston, together with a new and fair edition of his Hebrew Psalter, dedicated unto the name of my absent parrot. He therein informs me that our example had awakened the Dutch to make some noble attempts for the furtherance of the gospel in the East Indies. Besides, what memorable things were done by the excellent Robert Junnens in Formosa fifty years ago. He also informs me that in and near the island of Ceylon, the Dutch pastors have baptized about 300,000 of the Eastern Indians. For although the ministers are utterly ignorant of their language, yet here are schoolmasters who teach them the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, the Ten Commandments, the morning prayer, an evening prayer, a blessing before meat, and another after. And a minister in his visits, being assured by the master, who of them has learned all these seven things, he thereupon counts they have such a perfect number of attainments that he presently baptizes them. The pious reader will doubtless bless God for this, but he will easily see that one of our converted Indians has cost more pains than many of those. More thorough work has been made with them. It was in the year 1646 that Mr. Elliot, accompanied by three more, gave a visit unto an assembly of Indians, of whom he desired a meeting at such a time and such a place that he might lay before them the things of their eternal peace. After a serious prayer, he gave them a sermon which continued above an hour and contained the principal articles of the Christian religion, applying all to the condition of the Indians present. Having done, he asked of them whether they understood, and with a general reply they answered they understood all. He then began what was his usual method afterwards in treating with them, that is, he caused them to propound such questions as they pleased unto himself, and he gave answers to them. Their questions would often, though not always, refer to what he had newly preached, and he this way not only made a proof of their profiting by his ministry, but also gave an edge to what he delivered unto them. Some of their questions would be a little philosophical, and required a good measure of learning in the minister concerned with them, but for this our Eliot wanted not. He would also put proper questions unto them, and at one of his first exercises with them he made the young ones capable of regarding these three questions. Number one, who made you in all the world? Number two, who do you look should save you from sin and hell? Number three, how many commandments has the Lord given you to keep? This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, 
from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.